Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Chuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. You're listening to Formosa Files. I'm John Ross, and I'm talking to Chris Stowers, an Englishman based in Taiwan. He's a photographer and writer. You've probably heard him on our Free China Junk story. That was a three-parter. We told the story of a junk sailing across the Pacific in 1955. And we also talked about Chris's own voyage in a traditional sailing craft. That was back in 1988. So that was the start of your photography career. Oh, I, I didn't know it at the time. I just had a couple of rolls of um, slide film, which at the time that was the only film that you could take t- and present to a magazine. They wouldn't accept negatives. Frequently, even black and white, they didn't want them. So I had this color slide film. I'd had a great adventure. I went to a magazine in Singapore and I thought I'd try my luck. And lo and behold, there was like a nine-page story, a double spread opener. And it was the beginning of my career. I thought, well, this this is good. Let's pursue this avenue. And I've been doing it ever since. Well, I take my hat off to you because I'm a failed uh, freelance photojournalist. Uh, started about <laughs> yeah. the same time as you. But when did you first come to Taiwan? It was a couple of years after that event. Um, of course, it takes a few years to get established in any career. So by 1991, so sort of three years later, I was already taking photos and making my living from that. And um, I came over for a magazine called Asia Week in Hong Kong. Probably you'll remember Mm -hmm. them. It closed down back in 2001, but they were really good for a while. Um, And yeah, there was the National Day celebration or parade, military parade was going ahead, which Mm -hmm. in those days was a really big thing. It still had tanks trundling down the street, destroying the the tarmac and uh, a very heavy military presence to stop the people getting too close to barricades on the streets everywhere big banners of political heroes up on every lamppost and dutiful crowds of flag-waving people who I think still felt the martial law was going on and they were obliged to be there and show their patriotism (laughs) in some ways. Anyway, it was really good. Uh, But at the same time, what made that an important event to try to cover was the fact that the Wild Lily movement was still going on. There were students at the National Taiwan University Hospital up until the night before the, the National Day Parade and they'd sworn they were going to disrupt it. In the end, they were moved on to the National Taiwan University entrance and held a protest there, and any conflagration was avoided. But the press were gathered thinking, oh, this could be another you know, Tiananmen Square or something, because only two years before that, look at what happened in Beijing when tanks were on the streets and students were on the streets. Uh, of course, this being Taiwan, that didn't happen. <laughs> okay, so uh, remind people, uh, the Wild Lily movement, what was that? It's like the precursor to the... Sunflower movement. They seem to like flower movements here. Um, this was, Great, Chris, an obscure it, reference yeah, explained yeah, by another yeah, obscure yeah. reference. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets very nuanced in Taiwan, doesn't it? It's hard to explain yeah. to anybody outside of the place. This was, they were up in arms against the Article 100. Okay, the, the Article 100, this referred to Article 100 of the Criminal Code, which made illegal the advocacy of Taiwan independence, something the KMT government, which still viewed itself as the legitimate government of all China, viewed as a form of sedition. Yeah, so you couldn't actually argue for Taiwan independence. Mm, okay. So that, that shows how things have changed since then. 
Not, yeah, so so you were here for the that was, wild lily was, protest, nineteen ninety one. Nineteen ninety one. It had been going on since ninety, but it was mm-hmm. the showdown. So martial law ended in eighty seven, but it was quite a slow process for all these laws to be overturned and uh, freedoms to come in. Mm. I think you encountered a, a strange rule uh, coming here to Taiwan. Yes, this was after 91. I just popped back for, um, I forget what, a quick shoot. And I came in for a, a day shot, went back mm-hmm. the next day. And leaving from the airport, they said, oh, uh, you can't get on this flight. You're not allowed to leave yet. Why? Here's, <laughs> here's my ticket. I'm trying to get out. I'm not coming in. You know, let's let me go. So, no, no, no. You have to stay for, for three days. Anyone coming into the country has to stay for three days before they can leave again. I've no oh, idea. That's a classic. I've heard of overstaying your visa, but not <laughs> understaying. Yeah. It must have been close to the end of all these things because in the end, I was able to persist and throw my, my fake press card around and argue. And, and they just it gave in and let me on the flight saying, don't do it again, <laughs> sort of thing. And the next time I tried, they'd overturned that rule. But it was very weird. Oh, you got a story out of it. Well, yes. yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I first arrived in Taiwan 1993, a brief trip. My enduring memory from that was perhaps the difficulty of finding coffee and also how expensive it was. Yeah, you forget today there's coffee shops every on every corner, right? And in between. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was just the expensive hotels had mm-hmm. maybe some really expensive Japanese filter-style coffee or there was no Starbucks, nothing like that. McDonald's as well was the only other place to get coffee, but very watery, horrible stuff, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure that's right. Mm. Even even the McDonald's? Well, 93 were there. I mean, there were McDonald's here. I know yes, some towns yes, yes. Uh, like Taidong didn't have a McDonald's until maybe year 2000 or something. But the big, yeah. the big cities had McDonald's coffee. Mm. I mean, My memories are a bit hazy, perhaps uh, distracted by images of women riding side saddle on scooters. Uh, <laughs> something yeah. else I recall. All right. No, focus, John. Focus. <laughs> <laughs> So eventually you came to Taiwan to live here as your base. Mm, sure. It's not the immediate choice. I mean, I'd been living happily in Hong Kong for a decade before then, mm-hmm. and that was perfect for traveling around because you've got embassies from every foreign country. You've got direct air flights to many places. It made, you know, makes a lot of sense there, or Singapore could be a good base, Bangkok maybe. Taiwan, not many people were doing that, but of course, you have to remember the dates. That was like around 96, and a year mm-hmm. after that was going to be the Hong Kong handover. And at that time, we didn't really know if even journalists would be allowed to, to stay on mm-hmm. in Hong Kong after the Chinese had taken the place. It was actually a real concern. But at the same time, things were happening here. You had the 1996 election. The progressive role of history was <laughs> coming along and uh, what had started with like movements like the Kaohsiung incident and the, the Wild Lilies movement had mm-hmm. steamrolled into allowing free and fair elections taking place for the first time. And this was a huge story. People forget how big that story was. I think it's like the first time in 5,000 years of Chinese culture that any Chinese community held a direct election. There's some stunning statistic like that out there. So it was a big thing. And that helped tip the balance. And I thought, oh, I might as well just move here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's worked out relatively well as a base. A, a few jobs I've probably missed because I couldn't get to a place quick enough, having to deal with uh, two different flights instead of direct flights. Right. So some of our listeners have probably seen your photographs. You worked for Asia Week. Mm-hmm. That much and- uh, missed 
publication set up after the Vietnam War by Michael O'Neill, and it never made a profit in all its uh, 25 years of uh, life, but it, it was a good springboard for lots of young, hopeful, uh, wandering photographers and writers who got their careers started there. You also provided photographs for Insight Taiwan. It, Insight Guides. That's a, yeah, a UK-based guidebook company. They're a bit different from Rough Guides and Lonely Planet. They're actually photo-led. So the photos mm-hmm. are the main thing people buy them for, I think. And they have a lot of space for big double-page glossy shots, really nice paper. So I did the, the Taiwan one and uh, their Taipei City Guide. Mm-hmm. That was a brand new book, actually, that one. The Taiwan book had been around for a long time. I just updated it. Yeah. The first one was probably back in about 1984, uh, written by Daniel Reed. Uh, more uh, recently, uh, last year, actually, you provided photographs for a book called Discovering Taipei on Foot. Oh, on foot, yeah. Well, that, that was more of a labor of love with uh, myself and uh, a friend, uh, Scott Weaver, who we'd collaborated to do a series of stories about individual walking tours. And then we thought, had this great idea, or well, Scott did, let's put it together into a book and extend it a little bit. So we managed to get about, I think it was nine walking tours together. Most of them in Taipei and a few of them out uh, towards Geelong and uh, other parts of northern Taiwan. A nice historical focus symbol mm. for Formosa mm. Files. You kick off with a chapter on Taipei's old walled city. What, what can we see today? Well, there's a short-lived wall. <laughs> you can see some remnants of it, mostly up by the post office and the Baymen, the North Gate. They've preserved that area quite well. Uh, you have the... East Gate, of course, which is near Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Park or Liberty Square. And you have the South Gate down by the Immigration Office. And there's also another, like a small South Gate, Xiao Nan Men, mm-hmm. that was put in just to appease some local traders who wanted their own gap through the wall and didn't want to go through some rival clan's area to get to their Southern Gate. And then the West Gate, of course, is Ximen, and it's not there any longer. But if you look very carefully, there is actually a very, very small statue of the okay. gate near a bunch of department stores just across the busy junction at the main hub of Ximending. Uh, so there is a memorial for it there, but the actual gate, which is a beautiful one, actually, is long gone. You have a chapter on Dan Shui. Yes. That's quite a, a history-packed walk you have there, lots of mm. nice old well, buildings. Well, you see, Scott, who did the writing, he likes history, but um, I have my favorite areas too, so I'd, I'd have some ability to sway where we went, and I happened to be living in Danshui at the time. So yeah, and I always found myself wandering up and down the little alleys and back streets and steep hills of Danshui and falling in love with the variety of uh, architecture there. So this went from like the British embassy that used to be there, or consulate, to Fort San Domingo. There's some Japanese era buildings there. It's like old wooden Japanese houses still existing. Mm-hmm. I think it was a former governor of, of Geelong Port had his house preserved overlooking the river. So you really get, you can still feel that you're walking back through history because of the views. And uh, if you sort of close your eyes, half close your eyes to avoid the modern ugly buildings, you can kind of imagine yourself back a long time back in history. It's, it's wonderful. Yes, all those layers of history, uh, the variety of buildings in close proximity. And of course, you have uh, the setting. You've got the great mm. view across the river. To Guangyin Channel on the other side. Yes, mm. yes. Lovely. Um, I love, again, following the, the architecture theme, I guess. And I know it's a little bit stereotypical, but Dihua Street and Dadao Chang area, just because mm-hmm. of the history there. But not just the buildings. This time on Dihua Street, it's a living street and you can always find something interesting to photograph. 
whether it's people praying at the uh, city god temple or just the outspilling delta of produce from all the little traditional shops up and down there it's it's fascinating you, know, you could spend I, I do i spend hours there and i buy you know i buy my nuts and raisins and <laughs> things from those shops and actually it's better than buying them from the supermarket mm. okay for yeah. people looking to take a photograph of taipei a panoramic shot mm-hmm. where should they go Elephant Mountain on the MRT map. That's Xiangshan. That's the last stop of the red line, just mm-hmm. after Taipei 101. And you get out from walk, walk through a park and wind your way up the hill. Then there's a lot of steps. <laughs> but you'll follow the other people with tripods and things going up to the top of the mountain at around about uh, in the late afternoon. And hopefully you don't have a hazy sunset. Often you set out and it's actually quite clear. And then you get up there and it's hazy and you have to come back another day. That's the classic okay. place to go and have a look, but you don't want your pictures to be exactly the same as everybody else's. So I would just say try and find some vantage point, but avoid the obvious one, which is to go up the 101 building because that's too high. You're above the clouds. Too high. So, yeah, and all you're looking down onto are all these ugly tin rooftops. It's, it's really mm-hmm. uh, not worth the price of admission. Better would be maybe the Shinko Mitsukoshi store, which is the old tallest building mm-hmm. over by the, the, the main river and old downtown railway station. Uh, from there, you get a little more to look at. You see Yaminshan in the distance. You've got the rivers leading up to it. You have a few taller buildings around. Mm-hmm. Um, and the building itself is half the height of the 101, so you're a bit closer to linked to the ground below. Yes, I prefer the view from there to Taipei 101 as well. Yeah, and it's cheaper to get up, yeah. Um, another place I would say, and this is only because for many years I was photographing the, the TPAC, the Taipei Performing Arts Center, which has just opened mm-hmm. in Xilin. I, I believe that's not your favorite architectural uh, design. No, I, I, <laughs> it, I it, can't give my uh, honest opinion on that. Yeah, it splits opinions, doesn't it, really? Um, the one with the ball on the outside, that, fam- that, that kind of silvery building as you uh, mm. head towards Xilin, well, Xilin Night Markets. Anyway, there's a vantage point of on the other side of the road, if you walk up the hill, behind, I guess that's called the Jiantan Mountain, I think. Mm-hmm. And you walk to the top of there, it takes about 15 minutes. And all the old guys are doing their exercises at the top. And there's a temple up there. It's a really nice spot anyway. But there's, you mm-hmm. can get a very, very good view over that building. But if you don't like it, you can avoid that. And you have all of Xilin up to Tianmu and uh, Yaminshan, Guangyingshan. Are great at sunset, really nice at sunset. You get a different feel for Taipei from that particular angle. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not too hard to walk. It's a good walk, good exercise. Okay. Any recommendations for temples? Yeah. Well, the, the, the classic obvious one is uh, Longshan Temple, but I don't, I find it too crowded. It's better to visit the, the twin temples up near Yuanshan. So that's the Confucian Temple and the Baoan Temple. They're next to each other. So mm-hmm. if you prefer the busyness of the Baoan Temple, which is a, a Taoist temple, go there. Confucian Temple has cleaner lines, and I find it more architecturally interesting to photograph, but you get a lot of life and continuous festivals and smoke and incense and everything at the Baoan Temple. Very good performances usually going on there too. And that's also near to a, a night market as well. So you've got the triple whammy, you know, two temples and a night market. These are, these are great things to photograph in Taiwan, all within a very, very short distance of each other. Uh, and so an MRT stop not too far and away. Right nearby. So it's, it's so easy to... Um, to recommend that to anyone to go to. And I pop down there quite often as well, just to get life, you know, some new lifestyle shots. Uh, because where mm-hmm. you've got crowds of people, um, you can blend in as a photographer so much more easily than if you're in an empty space and stand out like a sore thumb. 
So uh, people are concentrating on their the uh, intricacies of their whatever um, religious rite they're performing. They're not looking at you, and you can hide behind all the other people there anyway and get you know snapshots of people unobserved. It's great. Excellent. Mm. Any other tips for taking pictures of people? Yeah, another good place to to get photographs to to shoot the human the human element. Um, of course, the political rallies. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the the reason for us photographers being in in Taiwan is to cover political events. I've been to every. I've covered every election since '96, and we'll be covering the one next year too. Yeah, the, at those rallies, that's when people let themselves go. I've got have had some great shots of people at rallies. I think it's because if you single somebody out, they get very self conscious, and in this mm-hmm. society which is not an individualist society. It's more it's a society where people do things in groups and are happy doing things in groups. It's not like the West where we like to be left alone so much. Mm-hmm. So when people are in a big crowd, they don't feel that you're photographing them so much. They're just a part of the bigger movement. And then they're much more willing to be moved by the emotions of the moment and let it out as well. But if you try to isolate that person later on, you'll just get a very shy sort of, you know, I can I can understand it completely. Um, I'm a mm-hmm. little bit like that myself, actually. I hate anyone pointing a camera at me. Unfortunately, it's my job, so I have to point my camera at other people. <laughs> but I try and make it as easy as possible. And if they're in a crowd, they feel happy. Great. Are there any festivals here you would recommend as being especially photogenic? Yeah, the trouble is narrowing them down, John. Really, there are so many. Like you've got the um, Daja pilgrimage, for example. That's mm-hmm. a big one. That, you always get good shots there. The one that sticks in my mind, and I think it's because it was the closest to being like back in a battlefield or something, was the uh, Yuan Shui Firework Festival. And that's down near your part of the world, isn't it? Down near Thailand. That's right. And this is the one where like some local guys up on a, a, a held up on a chair and uh, people firing fireworks at him. And then they start firing them at everybody else in the crowd. And you can only really go there wearing a crash helmet with a thick scarf around your neck and some old jacket that you don't it doesn't matter if you get burnt from fireworks hitting you and fizzing away and it really gives you this uh feel of uh, kind of urban warfare or something but it's actually a festival apparently <laughs> and uh they say they're not going to target you but i think a few people try and get sneaky shots off at the foreigner with the camera just to see if they hit you or not yeah so it's, it's, uh, it's down the road from my place but I, i've never <laughs> been i, I figure it's not best everyone's... for someone who's already lost one eye to <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not everyone's covered tea. You might want to be a bit careful yeah. there. But, uh, uh, so, that, but that's just that's just memorable. There's a few of those ones where people that people are firing fireworks at close range at each other. There's one down in Taidong as well. I think that's quite similar. One guy carried on a palanquin with the, only palm leaves to cover his face or his uh, other parts of his body from the worst exploding incoming rockets and things. Yeah, yeah, they do things in a in in a wild manner here when they get into it in Taiwan. They could be so calm the rest of the time, but uh, put on a festival and things uh, get very good. Excellent. Photographers out there uh, will not for- forgive me if I don't ask you what your uh, equipment is. <laughs> you got to tell me some <laughs> names. Oh, my God. Well, okay. Uh, I think with photography, you tend to start with one camera, the one you had when you were young. And then because you buy lenses for it, you're sort of stuck into staying with that system forever. For, so for me... My first professional camera was a Nikon or Nikon, mm-hmm. if you're an American. And uh, now I'm still using a much later generation Nikon. Not the latest, unfortunately. I can't afford that. I've got two very bashed up Nikon eight, uh, D800s. Uh, very D-800, reluctantly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, D800 uh, digital cameras. So I've been using mm-hmm. digital. I was very late on board the digital trends. So I was 
forced kicking and screaming into the modern era, like with many things, um, about 2006. I remember, actually, I was still shooting film up until then. In fact, I was in a temple once in Vietnam photographing mm -hmm. a guidebook. And I looked around, and the temple was full of tourists. And I was the only person there shooting with a film camera. The, the professional was on film. And all the, all, the, all the tourists, everybody else had digital cameras, way more advanced than mine. <laughs> and after that, I think the guidebook stopped accepting slides anyway. So I had to go to, to shoot digital, but I didn't like it. It's not the same. Chris, can you say something about the quality of light in Taiwan? Light in Taiwan is uh, generally it's, it's a problem. <laughs> mm. uh, it, it's quite hazy a lot of the time. This is this sort of subtropical. It's the humidity that's what does it. So you think you're going to have a, a good clear sunset or sunrise, and, and it's ruined because it, things are just muggy and foggy and not as clear as you'd like them to be. And there are some filters you can use to kind of get rid of some of that post-production, but it's not as good as having a just nice clear day. So if I go to Japan, for example, a temperate climate, I'm stunned mm -hmm. by the clarity of the light there. And it's just, oh God, I wish Taiwan could be like that. But on the occasional day when you get that good light, usually before a typhoon's pushing in, it brings a high pressure front. That's when I'll go out and shoot all the buildings again, because you it pushes the humidity away and you suddenly realize why it is you suffer and live in Taiwan just for those few days when it's really beautiful. Of course, also, twilight here is quite short, that sort of magical time where yeah. artificial light and natural light's balanced. That's right. Yeah, that, that magical time, that's uh, when it's actually best to photograph most things in Taiwan, unfortunately. You only get one time, say 15, 20 minutes in a day, which is the prime period in which to photograph almost anything. And I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek because um, mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of the um, general architecture, residential architecture in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. You've got beautiful scenery that would look so stunning were it populated by French or Italian houses, <laughs> anything other than these concrete monstrosities. However, that changes at nighttime uh, when those are obscured a bit and on mm -hmm. the periphery by darkness and you focus in on what's lit up by uh, either natural sort of resonant sunlight or um, or street lamps as they start coming on the trails of traffic going through with the long exposure. Always bring a tripod with you when you're photographing in Taiwan. I know it's uh, a bit of a burden to carry around, but you will miss it if you don't have it, mainly because a lot of the shooting you'll do will be at nighttime or in the evening <laughs> when the light's a bit low. Okay. So getting out of Taipei, do you have any favorite mm -hmm. areas? Escape from Taipei. Escape oh, from Taipei. Yeah, well, we're all stuck in Taipei because that's where the that's where mostly the work is. You know, and assignments tend to always be Taipei centric. Um, so I relish any opportunity to get out of the capital. I cycle a lot, so the East Coast is quite nice for that. Again, stereotypical. I prefer the mountains, honestly. To photograph though, cities, small cities are good. Taidong, I like, and then the islands. I absolutely adore Matsu and Jinmen Islands, and they are fantastic to photograph in. Actually, especially Jinmen. The architecture in Jinmen is great, and the atmosphere is very different from mainland Taiwan. It's like going I, back in I time. I love them too. Mm. Magnificent architecture on Jinmen. And the Matsu Islands, you have the beautiful indented coastline, yeah. as opposed yeah. to the incredibly boring, <laughs> straight, almost always straight coastline of Taiwan. <laughs> right. Oh, the indented uh, coastline, the beloved of smugglers, cigarette smugglers of Matsu. Yeah, they used to smuggle mm. cigarettes across, didn't they, from mainland China? Oh, also, in those two islands, of course, you have the added element of the military presence, which, like, 
it's a crumbling former military Cold War presence. It's, there are mm. hardly any troops there these days, but you get this feeling that of what the former front line was like, which yes. you don't in uh, in mainland Taiwan. You don't you're far away from from that <laughs> big giant, the giant panda in the room. Um, Peng Hu's great in its own if it's in its own way. If you like shooting water sports or partaking of them, um, the other really beautiful ones, very difficult to get to. Of course, it, well, not so difficult, but uh, you can get stuck there if the weather's bad. Is the Lanyu, it's the Orchid Island, and I have to qualify that by saying I was only there about twenty-five years ago, so it could have changed a bit. It might be more developed now, <laughs> but it was wonderful when I went there. And you felt so okay. cut off. It was like being almost in the Philippines or something. Mm-hmm. It was like it was a Closest you could get to traveling away from Taiwan by, but still being in Taiwan. <laughs> the feeling. Well, speaking of uh, traveling away from Taiwan, you mm. use this place pretty much as a base. Mm. You travel a lot. You do a lot of work overseas. Yeah, up until the the pandemic, I was hardly here. Really, I mean, I'd been here for twenty five or so years, but the majority, vast majority of my work was overseas in uh, in India, Indonesia. All all the other countries um, in Asia, apart from um, so far, apart from North Korea and Bhutan, so I've got to go to those two mm. at some point, tick them off the list. So when I would come back to Taiwan, there would always be this sense of great relief. It's like, oh, I can I can leave my bag without it being stolen, and uh, <laughs> could just rest up for a while, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, enjoy the friendliness of the people. No one's going to be shooting at me here. No one's going to be trying to rip me off. It's, uh, it was a, it's R&R, rest and recuperation to come back to Taiwan and then just plan the next trip or be sent on the next assignment somewhere. But uh, the pandemic changed that. I had to focus on Taiwan. And uh, I got to travel around within Taiwan instead because I could go nowhere else. And I had a quickly growing appreciation for all this place has to offer. I mean, it really is. If you know other parts of the world, it's one mm-hmm. of the best places to be in right now. I would really not want to be anywhere else, quite frankly. So you have to thank the pandemic. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, it destroyed my career. <laughs> Forget about <laughs> income, but uh, it was a nice way to get to see, be forced to see Taiwan and appreciate it more it's, it's good to do that at a certain time in your mm. life you've got to slow down a bit i mean there was a period in there for like 15 years where I was, I was in no country for longer than seven weeks at a time i mean i was just continuously on the move for, but it would always be nice to come back here you know and used to time it so i'd be here for the, the significant events like a double 10 celebration and, and you know anything that was going on big festivals i'd try and make it back and be here for those mm-hmm. yes it was, it was a good choice all those years ago I now realize. Yeah, I feel the same way. So, Chris, it's been great chatting with you. Now, th- that book, Discovering Taipei on Foot, where can people buy it? Uh, as far as I know, we're not in any shops. This was a self-funded project. So um, it's on Amazon. Uh, I guess if you just type in the title or, or also the author's name, Scott, which is S-C-O-T-T, Weaver, W-E-A-V-E-R, and uh, that with the book's title, and you'll get to the page. And for your work? Ah, uh, well, likewise, my name, or just chrisdowers.com. Uh, you get to the website, and we'll give you much more of an idea of uh, the stuff I do. Yeah, we'll, we'll put links up uh, on our website so people can. Well, thanks, John. <laughs> and also your documentaries. Good fun, ah, uh, Matsu yeah, yeah. and... The Ragnoselu Trail. Thank you, helping me out there with that name. <laughs> yeah. Can you just say it again? Ragnoselu. Uh, yeah, the Rachnus Selu Trail. That's based on a original uh, indigenous word, Rachnus, for um, camphor, 
and selu is uh, like shaolu it's a hacker word for for small road so it's actually the the camphor trail that used to yes. run through the central taiwan mountains to get out to extract the camphor and then later on tea so it was that's a historical documentary um, we did along with the co-host uh, Danny Wen for mm -hmm. uh, AXN channel in Singapore that was a good one excellent you've been listening to Formosa files and i've been talking with chris stowers bye goodbye <laughs>